Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Greg Farron, thank you so much, man, for joining me today. I I was alerted to you by a listener named Hannah, who used to go to your old church, which we're going to hear about what the old church was like in the new church, but she Mm -hmm. kept up with you via social media over the years, and uh, after she listened to a particular episode of mine, she was like, you should talk to Greg, and she gave me a little paragraph about what you were up to, and I said, yep. No more info needed. Thank you very much. I am reach out, reaching out to him right now. And I did. And now here we are chatting. Well, thanks. It's really great to be here with you, man. And it really was close because, as you know, I, I emailed you at 3 a.m. last night, awake with some kind of mild food poisoning. <laughs> I um, felt so I, bad for I you. believe from the, from the Seattle chain restaurant Red Robin, where we... <laughs> Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps it was a bad idea to go there for dinner last night, but it worked out. I'm fine. I'm glad. I'm glad you feel better. Those are the things that can take you down. Yes, indeed. And I hate stomach sickness the most. Anyway, so give us just like two sentences on what Hannah's talking about when she says your journey, and then we're going to unpack it a lot more as we go. In a little nutshell, it really was a shift from, uh, I was originally ordained uh, in the PCA, which is a uh, a more conservative uh, evangelical denomination. And I'm currently 
an Episcopal priest. And sometimes I feel like I'm on the prow of the ship, barely hanging on to the, even this very, very progressive denomination. Yeah. Uh, and so it's been a very, uh, I think, challenging journey. It's been a beautiful journey. I mean, it, at times I had to wrestle with, ultimately, when I was the pastor of a PCA church, I had to let go of salary, let go of benefits, let go of my community and jettison all that to feel like I had an integrity internally and have no idea whether I was going to stay in ministry at all. Um, so it's been a, a significant journey. And, and fortunately, my wife has made it along with me, which has been a huge, powerful uh, aspect to it. But that, that's it in a nutshell, from kind of a, a conservative Presbyterian to a envelope pushing Episcopal priest that sometimes barely feels like he's hanging on to Christianity at times. Just for some context, PCA is the denomination of Greg Jones from that recent interview that I did with the skepticism and, you know, a skept uh, worries about progressive Christianity. And also it is the denomination of the church that my wife and I went to for 10 years. Although to be fair in our Seattle PCA congregation was kind of on the liberal bleeding edge of mm -hmm. the national denomination, which is mostly based in the South. So that's some context. And I do want to, I want to start with this. You, you sent me over some sermon notes for this particular sermon that, that Hannah mentioned to me where you, part of it was you telling this story and you start that sermon with the story of the transfiguration um, mm -hmm. on the mountain with Peter and Jesus. And, and that's a metaphor that you use for paradigm shift, basically this in your case from conservative to liberal Episcopal, barely, barely hanging onto the labels. Just right. say a little bit about that story and and how it relates to a paradigm shift, and, and we'll bring it back in later. Yeah, I really do think everything is everything's paradigm. I mean, everything is lens on life. Everything is worldview. And of course, I think we're blind to our paradigms most of the time. We're effectively blind to our worldviews until there's enough new data and information that begins to poke holes in them. And they can either be paradigms that are uh, constrictive and fearful or expansive. And, and so when I, I look at that journey on, on uh, transfiguration of Jesus inviting Peter, John and James up to the mountaintop, it was just them. And it obviously in their journeys was a necessary aspect to their spiritual evolution to have this moment of whatever the boundaries within their existing worldviews were at that point were completely blown apart. And which I forget which gospel it's in, but there's a side note from the gospel author who says, yeah, Peter was babbling. He didn't even know what he was saying. You know, there's this aspect of recognizing that with new data, as Peter was exposed to this Jesus shining like the sun, uh, he was completely undone and then told not to share this with anyone. But But it was obviously what was critical in his journey at that point. I guess the question I had was, if Jesus could walk around shining like the sun, wouldn't that be like the ultimate strategy for everybody all the time? I mean, wouldn't everybody say, yeah, let's follow this guy, but no. And so I think in that aspect, theologically, it was a real moment of massive expansion of worldview for, for, for Peter. Um, and so for, for me, it was in that same way, what is this journey of paradigm? What is this journey of new information of my concept of God at times being shattered at times me babbling, like I have no idea what's going on. And then being so full of wonder, so full of fear, uh, and then being willing to take that and walk that back down into the Valley. Um, so in a nutshell, that's kind of it. 
whether that was a uh, that actually occurred, you know, historically on that mountaintop, or, or whether it's it's metaphor. Uh, either way, I just think it's it's a, a gorgeous articulation of our, our journeys and what what can happen, what could happen. Yeah, regardless of historicity, there is an interesting tension that I think is probably present in all religious systems where in order to get that religion started, it had to shift paradigms that there is a paradigm shift is a necessary component of a new religious system. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, right. You know, the Buddha says, yeah, you guys have all this kind of arcane Hindu stuff going on, but like, really it's just, and I'm massively paraphrasing uh, and probably and could be wrong, but it's actually just about detachment and it's simpler than that. And, you know, you don't need all mm. these deities. It's always, you know, Book of Mormon, um, Muhammad with mm-hmm. the with the Quran. It's like, look, I know you guys know Judaism and, and Christianity, but like, no, actually, it's this. So it's it's a necessary part of it. And then once we are religious people and the type of people who are drawn especially to really rigorous following of rules within a religion, mm-hmm. then there is a a natural kind of opposite thing where paradigm shifts are seen as scary. They are yeah. threatening. Um, by the time this comes out, people have, will have heard my conversation with John Sanders, the theologian, about authoritative religion versus nurturant religion and how it's all about not breaking the rules. We we have mm-hmm. the authority. We obey the authority. That is it. That's the entire ball game. And right. I'm always just puzzled by that natural tension with like the fact that Jesus was a paradigm shifting religious teacher who was right. not content to stick with the way that he and others understood the Torah at the time in which he was raised. Right. I mean, I think about that, you know, new, new wineskins, you know, for new wine that right. our old paradigm simply won't be able to contain this new information or even, you know, I, I, I don't throw around uh, Greek very much. I used to when I was in the PCA, but I don't throw it yeah. around much anymore, but that the Greek word metanoia that Jesus used, at, we translate as repent, repentance, which unfortunately is such a small word, or we in the Bible Belt in the Southeast, we've really corrupted it into kind of a get your ducks in a row with a hint of threat behind it. But metanoia really breaks on the meta, which means more or greater, and noia means mind or consciousness. So really, it's a enter into the larger consciousness that his that out of the gate invitation for Jesus's ministry was, if you're going to get what I'm offering, you have to enter into the larger consciousness, not get your ducks in a row. And so I think even there is this, if the whole, the whole kingdom of God to me was, it's not a, it's, it's a place we see from, it's not a place we go to, but it's a new consciousness. It's a whole new way to see everything. And that to me is a, uh, that's, that's what I say. Everything is paradigm shift. I sometimes bristle at the new consciousness language. I think there's a part of me having grown up in Northern California (laughs) That is just skeptical of kind of hippie shit. Yeah. Um, And kind of. I'm in the Southeast, so we're so far removed. New consciousness is a brand new word around here. New consciousness, (laughs) to say new consciousness in the Southeast is like playing the Sex Pistols in 1977. (laughs) It sounds so fresh and new. This is a new idea. Have you ever heard of this thing called New Consciousness, Dan? And 
And to me, it's like it's like the the aged hippies who were involved in the Esalen Institute in the seventies, like who can't who can't move on. But I like the I like Lens worldview. I yeah, I, I like that Len's idea of life. basically paradigm, right? Yeah, yeah. Shifting the perspective from which you see things. Um, if that's what we mean by new consciousness, I'm in. I don't know that that's what people always mean. Uh, that's good I, clarification. I do understand that's what you mean, and I'm I'm way on board with that. So that's really nice. We have that now as kind of a um, animating metaphor for the story that we are now going to flesh out. I just want to I want to hear your story, and mm-hmm. so let's start maybe in high school. I believe you are not religious at this point in your story, right? Right. And, and just very briefly, z- zooming up to that, my, I grew up mainly overseas in Asia and Japan and Taiwan, and we came back to the States when I was around in the sixth grade. And so while I was American, I didn't really understand American rules, understand American culture. Hmm. I always felt on the outside, always trying hard to fit in, but never quite fitting in. And so by the time I was in high school, and this is in the Washington, D.C. area, I was I had a, a pretty uh, good looking facade uh, of togetherness, you know, playing lacrosse and the cute girlfriend and, you know, making so, so decent grades. But inside I was just in turmoil and it just seemed to get worse and worse. I kind of went with a, a philosophy of just like a lot of high schoolers. You know, it was mainly just drugs and alcohol and sex. But the level with which that I was pursuing those was pretty intense. Uh, and by the time I was a, a, a senior in high school, I was reaching a, a, a low point, a profound low point. I actually started quietly contemplating uh, suicide, which would have been a total shock to anyone around me. And I remember it was February 3rd of 1990. And the reason I remember that is, well, it was an important date, but it was a, a lacrosse party. And I went to it and I got hammered as usual. And this despair landed on me that with this, that went through my whole being. And I just really thought I've got all this passion inside me and it is utterly useless. And I just felt like it felt like there was a dark stormy cloud as far as I could see over me. I just thought this, this is not worth experiencing. I need to end this pain. And that was a Saturday. And I kind of was holding, contemplating what that would be like on Sunday. And then I went to school, my senior year, I went to school and there was a buddy of mine there and again, this is the D.C. area. So this is not a place. I don't think I ever talked publicly about faith with anybody. You know, it's in Washington, D.C. And my, I, at that point, I considered myself an atheist. I thought religion was kind of a, a pitiful crutch for the weak. Mm-hmm. And here I was so, doing so well with my philosophy. <laughs> and he, he, was this, he was on the lacrosse team, this great guy. He would always offer to drive me around, be my designated driver when I was wasted. And we kind of get in these conversations. I was a pretty violent uh, drunk when I was in high school. I was getting in fights. And he was... Even when I tried to fight him, he was always nice to me on Monday when everyone else, you know, I had apologized to him all week. But he pulled me aside that Monday morning. It was February 5th of 1990. And he just started. He said, I want you to know I've been praying for you. And I never heard that. And I was, what are you, what are you talking about, man? That sounds strange. And, and then he just started sharing about his spiritual journey. And he identified as a Christian. In that moment, I remember, I remember the room. I remember the moment that one moment. As he was talking and sharing, I did not believe that there was God. And the next second, it was this, I, it was like this corner of that dark rolling cloud lifted. And I saw this drop of blue sky. And I realized that every time I'd been with a, a woman, every drug I'd done, that what I really was after was that drop, that blue sky. 
And these were all poor substitutes. And I remember, I didn't know anything about anything, but it was, okay, if that is God, if that, that's the center of the universe, that's what life's about. That's what's been missing. And so I, in, in my life at that moment, I knew that this was this mystery that we called God. And I committed it. I was like, this is what I want my whole life to be about. And pretty much since that day, February 5th of 1990, now, you know, all these almost, you know, I'm almost 50 now that's been defined the trajectory of my whole journey and uh, of exploring this mystery and inviting other people into the exploration. And uh, right after that, I moved down from the DC area to North Carolina into the Bible belt. And uh, at that stage of my journey, things had been so up in the air with all the identity and drug abuse. And I needed a very simple faith. I needed a simple kind of binary faith. I needed something to cling to. That was, so it was pretty much, believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you're going to heaven, and your main job is to get other people to go there with you. And so I clung to that simple faith for a, a good number of years, and it kind of took me through uh, a lot of college. I was very passionate. I was the guy that would get up and have three-hour quiet times, you know, outside, you know, in the park, and go down to the street to evangelize and witness and get people into heaven. Really passionate. But I mean, talk about full of anxiety. Most of that was driven by this. I thought, if I don't cling, if I, A, if I don't perform, but B, if I don't cling, I'm going to slide right back down into that pit of despair that I was in before. And so there was my, there, a lot of my drive was fear-based and anxiety-based. So two things jump out to me there that are interesting. The, the first is that you really had like a classic conversion experience, the, the kind mm-hmm. that I grew up hearing about in testimonies, you know, growing up California evangelical, the kind that have permeated all religious systems as far as we know, mm-hmm. especially in the modern world uh, where there is access to so many alternate kind of ways of living. And then that kind of simple obedience life, that kind of more pure life in some sense mm-hmm. and the sky opening and and really, I would say like the very real neurological experience that people have. Right. And the language that we might use for that neurologically is there There can be these kind of brief, serious rewiring experiences. I never mm-hmm. had one of those. You know, I had mountaintop experiences at camp and stuff, but I was I was born into it. I always took it seriously since I was five years old or whatever. And mm-hmm. I took all of my natural feelings of anxiety and guilt, which I put spiritual language on. And that kept me – I mean that kept me in and but also – I do believe I had genuine faith and I had genuine experience of God of some kind. Um, so that's the first thing is just you, you really did have one. You had that kind of conversion experience. And I, I don't know if you want to say anything else about that before we move on. Uh, you know, the funny thing is th- that was, uh, that was not my circles. I didn't know any about, I didn't know anything about that, but you're right. I do think it is a, it's a human experience that happens to a lot of people, whether it's, you know, deep in caves, you know, by our ancestors or, you know, whether it is in every faith tradition, but you're right. There is something really interesting neurologically and whether it was completely neurological or, and I, what, what, there's no such thing as completely neurological. Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's, all say, it's all one, right. It's, it's all, yeah. all a piece. And to me, I don't even, I don't spend any time thinking about trying to, to justify it, but here, here was an experience that really altered my life trajectory in a way that as I look back and how I've spent my life now, I'm like, yeah, I've not regretted it. I've not said, you know, I really wish I'd go, I'd, I'd shut down and, you know, and, and, and done something different. So I am grip. So whatever, 
for whatever reasons of that point of utter despair. And I do think sometimes there is a conjunction between the level of depth of desperation and the poppingness, the, the poignancy of the neurological experience. Uh, I think they sometimes uh, go together. Oh, I think so. I mean, I know that there's evidence in the attachment theory literature that those who have worse attachment are more likely to have uh, significant conversion experiences. Well, um, that would check out. And I had, I had super secure attachment to, to both parents and, and a really, you know, really loving, nurturing home. I, I, I did have a lot of issues as an elementary school kid with like socially, I was bullied and stuff, but, mm. but other than that, I mean, I, you know, then starting in sixth grade, I got into a better school and had mm. a good time pretty much. And so I didn't, you know, where would, I didn't have a need for that kind of conversion. I mean, yeah. do you want to fill in any details about like home life? You don't have to disclose anything sure. you don't want to. No, I, I've got a great, my, my parents are in their mid eighties now. I've got an amazing relationship with them. Part of that amazing relationship that I have presently is that we've worked through a lot of how things weren't so bang up uh, yeah. back in the seventies and early eighties. Like I said, I grew up mainly in Asia and that expatriate lifestyle. Uh, they weren't missionaries. They were uh, aren't military, but they were working with the national security agency. So we were off base, you know, we weren't a part of that larger uh, expat community and they were pretty, they were busy. They were pretty absent. And so here I was as a kid, you know, zipping around uh, Taipei, which was very hostile towards Americans at that time. And mm. uh, then coming back, not understanding the rules. So really feeling profoundly detached, like an outsider everywhere totally. I went. So you, I do think this moment of, Oh my God, there's something bigger than me that loves me. Uh, and that uh, is this, kind of infinite mystery. Like to me, that was, it, it was like the first sense of coming home. It, it was the first time I felt that safety, that attachment. And so, yeah, I think it was a, I mean, it was a mind blow. And to me, but it was, it was a tenuous attachment and I was terrified I was going to lose it again. So I went after it like a, like a drug addict. I mean, like, a, right. you know, with, with the passion that this, if I don't have this, I'm going to die. Um, and so that kind of led me to be a very passionate kind of fundamentalist, or, you know, in the Southeast for, yeah. for quite a while. Yeah, maybe that's a helpful way to, to think about, like, th the way that I want to take conversion experience very seriously, but I also want to separate it from one of the narratives that often goes along with those experiences, which is, and once you've had this, everything <laughs> is solved, right? Like that <laughs> now, like... So I don't believe that God sees us differently before and after our conversion. I know that that's what I was taught to believe. And yeah. that is the default in most conservative Christianity is that there is a phase shift in our right. standing before God. That has honestly never made sense to me since I was old enough to think about it, 17 or 18. Yeah. So, so that's the part that I would reject, that the conversion experience is the stamp that now God loves you and didn't before or, or anything like that. But it yeah. is still a real experience. So if you can divorce it from that theological teaching, you can appreciate it without putting too much, like asking it to do too much work, basically, right. the experience. And then, like, as you're saying, you can see it for what it is, a real experience that came mm -hmm. out of a real context uh, that that shifted your trajectory in a mm -hmm. real and helpful way. Right. The other thing that came out of what you were talking about was you said you were driven by anxiety, um, that if you didn't perform and kind of cling to this simple narrative of Christianity that included evangelism, uh, that you'd be right back to that pit of despair. And what I thought was interesting there was that you didn't say, if I failed it, I would go to hell. You said, mm. 
I'd be back to where I was sort of personally, chemically, neurologically, depression wise. And so I wanted to have you talk about that a little bit more. At this stage of my journey, I I, I personally, I I don't believe in hell. And I've I've been, for for me, that's no longer, but even then when I did believe in hell, somehow uh, someone gave me a, a book by Martin Luther on his commentary on Romans and Galatians. And I was reading that pretty early in college. And there was something about the way that Martin Luther, the German reformer, talked about uh, grace that was a piece that for some reason, it, it, that part of my brain that would be afraid of hell, it just erased that. It was, it, it was I never was really nervous that I was, I was going to go to hell. It was, I don't know, I mean, I hear that from a lot of people, uh, that, that, that fear of hell, but I was terrified on deeper levels that I would go back to that space of so uncomfortably in pain within my skin that I wanted to end my life mm-hmm. because it was, it was like living in a bottomless pit. And, and so that to me was, was tangibly terrifying. And I guess hell seemed more intangible. And I mean, now granted, I would say, Oh yeah, your conscious eternal torment. That's that's for you if you don't believe in Jesus, but something about if I, Hey, I believed in Jesus even if I was clinging to him, but, and then, and a lot of it too, almost like a, a drug addict in ways. And, and, and it was, I, I think I would go to try to charismatic circles to try to speak in tongues. Like I, w- I wanted a faith that was incredibly experiential uh, and I wanted to almost reach this state of bliss. The, the day that I had this, and I call it, I often refer to it as a spiritual awakening rather than a conversion experience, but one of the same in many ways. But the day that I had that, I went to my girlfriend. I said, we're not having sex anymore. I went to all my friends and said, I'm not doing any more drugs because mm-hmm. I thought these were the things that were dragging me into the pit. And I did. I left all of that, that those days, you know. Um, but in some ways, I was then saying, OK, I want that same high, but now through spirituality. And so that was kind of what, what drove me to. It was, it was some to avoid the anxiety and a desperate and a fear that I'd slide back in. But it was also saying, OK, this was a really beautiful blue sky that I saw. And I know this is where beauty is. I want to have as much of it as I possibly can. That's great. I have a feeling that we're going to come back to this concept of wanting faith that was experiential because I kind of know where we're going. <laughs> it's, it's actually I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's just interesting to me that I can't really remember what my sort of affective, emotional, experiential posture was towards my faith in high school, for instance, Mm -hmm. like late high school. I remember being really into the social aspect and I, I loved my friends and I would occasionally kind of worship musically. I loved going to Mexico and building houses. I think I loved the stuff that connected with the real world. Yeah. That was more tangible, but I don't think it was very experiential for me in the kind of like direct experience of God through meditation or, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of a thing didn't really come in till I was like 30. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I don't know why it didn't. I wonder if, if for you to have something experiential was a direct application, almost like putting a lotion on a rash because you had, you had that deep emptiness, kind of visceral. I think it goes back to that level of attachment. I just wonder if, because you're coming out of the secure environment, that it just was this flowing, you know, and you're right. To me, it was, it did feel like a a balm on a very painful wound. Um, But I think that drove me in in some measure for those experiences. Okay. So back to the story. So you're living out this 
you know, this conservative evangelical situation and kind of doing it in a way that most of us would recognize from your description. And then at some point you get ordained. How, how do we get to the point of you becoming a PCA pastor? Well, I met my wife our, our freshman year at a an university Christian fellowship, which was a big uh, campus ministry. Yeah, uh, We dated all the way through college, got married a week after graduation. And then we're like, what do you do as a, a passionate, extreme Christian? Well, let's become missionaries. And we moved to Uganda, uh, East wow. Africa. So we mainly lived half the time in a mud hut. And, and there's a lot of, oh boy, I have a lot of issues with that. Even that, that's when I, I started to feel the profound dissonance mm-hmm. there. There was about a 50% childhood mortality rate. Half the kids died by the age of five in, in the particular area where we were. And there was no running water. It was subsistence farming. And we did have medical doctors. We had civil engineers doing clean water. But uh, And I was the church planter, one of the church planters to, to work with the indigenous church with my uh, lofty uh, theological uh, perspective. But even then, I just thought, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I felt like, again, this was a place where I was attempting to apply my gifts. And I really felt like this work seems, it, it just, what are we doing here? This seems dissonant. I mean, these are people that just survived Idi Amin and Abodi and subsistence, you know, and, and 50% childhood mortality rate. And here I am, a 21-year-old kid from North Carolina, and I'm going to teach them something. And I remember feeling, uh, and, and again, I, I slid, my, my poor wife at that point, I slid into another pretty serious depression in that place where I just did not even want to go out of our hut. I would just shut the shutters and just stay in the hut and read uh, John Grisham books to escape where I was. And I finally, what, what drew me out of it was the idea. I went to the team lead and I said, I feel like I'm trying to teach things that I don't even really know where people are coming from. So instead of me teaching, can I just, can I be the team learner where I just go and learn all about their existing spiritual beliefs and their existing perspectives? And of course, at that point, I was like, and then we'll have the right angle strategically to land the gospel ship right in the middle of it. That was, exactly. that was my selling point. But at the time, right. I just wanted to learn. And so that kind of pulled me out. And then right, at, right after that, I kind of, we were there about a year and a half. And then there was an attempted coup and we had to evacuate. And then about a few weeks later, I'm at Wake Forest in North Carolina doing college ministry. So it was a real shift. And I started seminary at that point. And then I worked full-time at a PCA church because it was primarily a PCA mission in Uganda. Worked full-time at a PCA church. They paid for my seminary. They paid for my housing. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. I can just say this. They really did love me well. Uh, They cared for me well. They welcomed my family. We started having kids at that point, which... So working full-time, going to seminary part-time, and having kids, that was a pretty brutal time in ways. Oh, man, I can't imagine what that's like, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I won't say that. It is an intense season. It is a very, very intense season. And I didn't even have a podcast. I didn't even have a podcast. A little bit of of mild food poisoning is enough to derail a whole day when when that's what the days are like. No, so I definitely know where you're coming from there. And, and so in your in your notes of your sermon that you sent me uh, from this particular sermon that Hannah mentioned, um, you said that this denomination defined the parameters of my worldview. And we could substitute worldview for paradigm or lens, right? Right. right. Consciousness. Yep. So talk a little bit about that. How, how did it define the parameters? Like, I, I guess what I want to know is how can you now say where the boundaries were? Like, what did it feel like? Right if you came up against a boundary. So that simple faith of if I believe in Jesus, my sins are forgiven and I go to heaven, 
that's that's pretty embraced by many evangelicals and conservative churches, right? So, right. So I found a community in Uganda where most of these people were PCA, but then they added all these elements of uh, loving John Calvin and loving Martin Luther and Augustine, and so they. And I've always been, kind of been drawn to some, some academic aspects as well. So here was this academically oriented conservative denomination that was, and I was reading all of these books that that flushed out my neighborhood instead of just living in the one little tiny one room apartment of believe in Jesus go to heaven all of a sudden now i was connected with this story and, and of yeah. course the way that it's articulated is you know reformed theological seminary is kind of like it was the the early church uh constantine and then nothing 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 corruption corruption luther uh right, and right. and then finally we got it back right with sola scriptura sola gratia all the solas and we move on from there and but finally it was like this neighborhood that i was living in they loved me i loved them it felt safe and they were really supportive of me i mean again they one of the, the pastor from winston-salem which where we, i ended up going to that church when we got back from africa he visited the, the mission in Uganda, we struck it off. So he's the one offered me a, a job, offered me a house, offered to pay for seminary. Uh, and I worked at that church. And all of a sudden, it's this uh, amazing community where I have lots of potential. These people think uh, I'm great, and I have lots of uh, potential as a minister. So really, at that point, the the core of the of believing Jesus and go to heaven for sins are forgiven was still there. And now I had it in this larger neighborhood. There were things that already started rubbing me Sure. Raw, like you couldn't ordain women, that uh, homosexuality was a sin. There are things that, that rub me raw, but part of the paradigm is your, your heart's really corrupt. You know, you, you are sinful. Mm. You, you, are, you, are, you are, you know, there's total depravity here. You know, you, your, your mind is corrupt, your heart's corrupt. So, and this was a huge aspect of this particular paradigm. So you need to trust the framework more than you trust yourself. You, you really can't trust your own impulse. You can't trust your own intuition. You certainly can't trust your own conclusions if they differ than this worldview. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit. Uh, I want I want to hit on that. But also before that, just this idea of the neighborhood got bigger. And I'm, I'm thinking of it as like a. am trying to think of an analogy on the fly here. But it's sort of like if you thought you could only ever live in Fresno, California, like that's the simple the simple story you said, you know, mm -hmm. believe in Jesus, die, go to heaven, get everybody else to heaven. Mm. And then someone goes, no, 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 actually, this story goes a lot like Fresno is not <laughs> the only city. Like it's part of America and America right. is 50 states and 360 million people. And you're yep. like, whoa, OK, I'm not just a Fresnoan. I'm an American. That's so yeah. cool. Hey, tell me about um, Europe. Well, no, now. Okay, yeah. we, we don't go to Europe. Uh, they're they are going to hell, and they're wrong about everything. Yes. Okay, okay but but Africa, nah, we we don't go. We don't learn from Africans, right? Right. Like so, it's it's bigger, but the boundaries are just as firm. They're just the boundaries went farther out. Right. Exactly. Right. It's not a per, it's not a semi permeable membrane where the no. best ideas from other people can still come in, and we can learn from them. No, there's a hard wall there from anything that is not sort of approved. It's just a bigger group now. Right. Uh, when when you bring in that historical, the Reformation stuff and the early church fathers, well, you still have to read the early church fathers this way. And we don't read right. Gregory of Nyssa <laughs> and we don't read, you know, so right. there's still other rules. It's just like the whole United States instead of one city. That, 
That's exactly right. And, and I would say in some ways it got even more limiting because because at least hmm. when I was just in my little one bedroom apartment, I could be with the charismatics and I could be with the Baptists and I could be. But now with this reform perspective, you know, now, granted, the reform perspective is going to welcome all these other Christians that say sure. they're going to heaven, but they're wrong in their right. understanding of the gospel. And they're wrong if they don't, you know, and, and so there was so in some ways it was even I still had my neighborhood within America and we were the ones that were the most right and and even within that, there was so there was so much fear. I mean, it was it, within the system. There was such a fear based system that ultimately it was this psychotic God that had one arm around you saying they loved you and another with a knife saying, I'm going to threaten you with eternal conscious torment. And if you got out of this, you know, to me, it was I had some friends that began to drift away. Uh, mm-hmm. From the and and I remember thinking, oh man, this poor. And then my question was, I wonder if they were ever truly saved, you know. And my my question yeah. is immediately about their ultimate self. And everybody I met, I was trained to size them up immediately, whether they were saved or not saved. And then that determination would impact every future interaction with them strategically. And it was exhausting, mm-hmm. and it was totally head based. And, and while I would say it's supposed to be love, because I'm trying to save them. It was it was fear and performance. I mean, it was uh, truthfully, it was now that I look back at my inner state during those years, uh, so much anxiety, which, of course, then ultimately manifested itself again later on in my journey. Yeah, anxiety doesn't uh, doesn't just go away. You can't just push it down. I remember that knee jerk reflex as well, even even though the beginnings of our stories were different in terms of that attachment and conversion experience type stuff. I remember very, very clearly the, well, oh, I guess they never were a Christian because you, (laughs) you can, once you are one, you you know, so like that was, it was a reflex. I mean, it happened so quick. It was the first thought I would have if somebody wasn't a Christian. What do you, what do you think is going on there? What, what is it? What is the function of that? What's it doing? You know, I just think it's this, it's inherent in, in this binary system of in or out. I mean, to me, I don't, I don't know of another way that if you believe that you're either, like you were saying, uh, God's going to view you differently, either you are uh, destined for hell and you are an object of wrath still, and God looks at you and only sees sin, or you are this gloriously washed clean, you know, if that's your parent, I don't know of any other organic human, natural human response than to when you meet someone, you got to know whether they're in or out. I mean, it's, right. I think that's the power of fear. Well, it's the power of categories too, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think that disgust separation, and purity, purity and disgust psychology play into it too. Mm, interesting. You know, like to bring in a little bit of an evolutionary psych angle via Richard Beck, that like when, when our disgust and purity modules get activated, obviously that's like metaphorical language for whatever's going on in our in our minds but when those get activated those produce really strong feelings because mm. you know decay and infection and death are associated with impurity mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the quickest ways to die as an early or proto human mm. is to like eat something that's rotten and gone bad and makes you sick and then you die from fever you know mm. like so there's a there's a multiplying effect for disgust that's not there for necessarily there for something like fairness or, or whatever. Interesting. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. So that's an idea. But I wanted to come back to this one more aspect of this framework that you mentioned where you said, you know, in this framework, 
as a human, your your heart is really corrupt. You mm. you can't really trust yourself, your emotions, your intuitions. And I, I have two things that I want to say about this and get your take. First is that as I study spiritual abuse, this is one of the main types. Mm-hmm. Is basically, you know, it's sometimes it it's gaslighting, but it's sometimes meaning sometimes it's well, no one else is asking those questions. Like, that's not a good question. Uh, but sometimes it's quite a bit more direct of like, the heart is deceitful above all things. And yeah. this is what we think that means. It means you might watch Will and Grace or Master of None and think that these gay people have a godly relationship, but that's just your selfish right. desires oh, uh, yes. selling out to the world. And <laughs> that, right, I, I, and so, not only did I hear that, I'm afraid I've probably even taught that once. I mean, it's brutal, brutal. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, collateral damage. So there's that. And like, you have to trust this framework more than you can trust yourself. But yes. one interesting thing about that is it's ultimately a self-defeating circular argument. You right. have to say something like, well, no, I trust the text over myself. Right. But then once you realize that you're actually just trusting an interpretation of the text yes. over and against other interpretations of the text by yep. other faithful people, then you have to say, oh, well, I'm trusting my intuitions and my reason that yep. Calvin was right. Yep. So now you're trusting yourself. So, right. it, you know, like, I don't think there's a way around that if you really dig down. I think it's right. ultimately self-defeating. It's it totally is. And, and ultimately, that's became clear to me. But I really do believe paradigms and worldview are not primarily rational. Uh, I think totally. they are emotional and, and, and kind of primal. And at that stage for me, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's a pretty 101 conclusion that it's, it's circular reasoning and it doesn't hold up. But the reason I think that I would blind myself to that was this is my community attachment again. Th- these are these are people that love me and they accept yeah. me. And they're excited about my future. And I have lots of opportunity here. And this is a place that rewards passion and drive. And so that was, uh, to me, it was, again, I I was at that stage of my journey. I I think I probably blinded myself to that obvious circular reasoning for the sake of being in a community that I really felt loved me. Yeah. And you were experiencing secure attachment or, or whatever you want to call it. You were experiencing community and family in a way that you hadn't before. And that was for you, the proof in the pudding. That was the good fruit of the tree. And I 100% understand that you, that you interpreted as then this must be true because look, I'm being loved by these people. I wasn't loved before when I was getting faded at the lacrosse party. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and look, uh, and, and, and here too, I'm, I'm smart. These people know they're Greek and they know they're Hebrew. And so do I now. And um, I can uh, read these academics. I can quote all the, the, the church, well, it's church fathers. We didn't emphasize the mothers, but the church fathers throughout history, to me, it was the the academic credentials. uh, It had the social credentials, the opportunity. And ultimately I think all of that, I remember I, I was willing when I was ordained, I had to, were there any ex- exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith? Uh, and when I said, well, I think scripture is pretty clear that there were women deacons. And I remember I had to write a huge paper, I had to defend it in front of the, all the presbytery. And they said, okay, this does not strike at the fundamentals of our beliefs, but you can teach it, but you can't practice it uh, if you want to be ordained. 
So let's hold off a bit on these beliefs that started to form the cracks, you know, female deacons and the like. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about those beliefs. Great. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan That link is also in the show notes. It is $5 a month. And with it, you get access to two exclusive episodes per month and the patron only Facebook group, which is a fantastic uh, little community. Not so little, like a few hundred people, but uh, feels little because people are really responsive to each other. And I, I know that a lot of friendships have developed through that group. So if you'd like to support, that's what you can do. And uh, I'm going to go back to the episode here with Greg now. So Greg, what do you remember being the first belief that uh, started to chafe, show some cracks where you're like, oh, actually, I think that maybe we are missing the point here a bit. So, so right after I was ordained, the Presbytery sent me to plant a church, start a church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we started with 10 people in a living room and it grew fairly quickly. We, we, uh, we got up to about 300 people. And during that time, the first thing that really created some dissonance was the, the, it was a women's issue. That was the first thing that kind of lit the fuse because we had these, I mean, brilliant, gifted women that, you know, been to seminary and could preach and teach way better than I could. And, you know, uh, and yet they couldn't. And so that was the first thing that began to, I was just, this, there's so much dissonance between my genuine experience of reality. Also, I'm seeing over here, these Christian denominations allow this. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, of course the PCA was saying this reading of scripture is the correct one, but there's, you know, all these denominations that are already doing this. So that was the first crack. The biggest crack came when Probably we were about a hundred people at the church and this couple came, started attending the church and they both happened to be women. And they were, at this point, I realized I was already feeling some pretty significant shame about being in the PCA and not being honest with myself about that. But what gave me the clue is that on our website, on all of our bulletins, nowhere did we say PCA, nowhere did we mention it. Like it was it was definitely like a don't ask, don't tell we about our denomination because I didn't want people to know. So that was the first kind of clue. But I, I think I operated that way for years without knowing I was doing that. Can we pause there for a second? Because I think that this is super common. Mm. There's almost a joke now that like all, a lot of these kind of uh, hip, seeker sensitive churches yeah. either completely hide or bury somewhere on the website, the fact that like they're actually Southern Baptist or, or whatever. (laughs) And, and I have thought of it for a different motive as being based on a different motivation than you're saying. And so I want to, I want to tease this out a little bit. So I've generally thought of it as, well, this is image management. You know, the SBC gets some bad press and yeah, we technically agree with them and we'll take the funding, but, you know, we don't really identify with Albert Moeller or whatever it is. And so let's hide it because people don't care anyway. That's a little different than what you're saying. What you're saying is like, no, I'm I like don't want people to know. Uh, I'd really like to be 
like, yeah, we're associated. And, and interestingly, as you mentioned, like you're financially connected, they paid for your seminary, you know, you're right. It's almost like the mafia in that sense, of course, yeah. without, <laughs> without the super violent, um, keeping up of, uh, those relationships, right. Through, through threat of violence. But, <laughs> but there is that kind of like, you know, you're one of us, we, we kind of got you here. Yeah. It, there, it strikes me as a little different than the assumptions that I often make about that. I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I think on some level, there, now that I look back and, and I try to be honest with myself and what, where I was at, at that time, I do think some of it was brand management that we certainly were an unusual PCA church. We're probably, you know, we were, we didn't have a traditional building. We were just in a warehouse. Every single chair was different. You know, it was like, we weren't part of the secret sensitive thing as much, but it was most of, most of what the PCA represents in the Southeast, at least it was like, white men with sweater vests and, you know, yeah. golf jackets, you know, so, and, and it just, it just felt like we're, we're not that. So part of it was brand management, but part of it, I think too, was a, a knowing, and this ultimately is what came to, to bite me hard and really was a shattering moment in terms of both shattering me apart and beginning to shatter me open, but hiding it was a part because I knew that if anyone looked into the PCA, the history was not bang up and the language was very exclusive and and that's what happened. So so this right. this couple started coming, and I was so glad they were there. And honestly, I can just say this: at that's this stage for me, I was wrestling. I was just like, look, Jesus just accepts people, and the and then the, the rest is up to God, you know. So I, it was like, I'm not going to try to change them. I just want to love and accept them. And so that's kind of where I was. And and this was the first time they'd been to church, and they were I think they were in their forties. And and they felt so loved and they felt so part of our community. And they were there for a good number of months and were there every single event we had so connected. And then some, I got this call on a Sunday afternoon after service. And it was one of the women, the couple, she said, someone told me that we're PCA. And I went and looked on the website and the website says that homosexuality is a sin. And she said, do you believe my relationship with my wife is a sin? And it was, I was shattered. It, I was so exposed. I, I, I mean, I, I was, I hemmed, I hawed. I said, yes, I said, no. I mean, it was, at the, but at the end of the conversation, she knew that I, that she, the community had been disingenuous. She was shattered. She was so heartbroken. She compared at, at that moment, she said, I feel like, and I don't know if this is a part of her story, but she said, I feel like a child you lured into a van and raped. Hmm. And I, I mean, I was weeping, she was weeping and she got off the phone furious. She was fuming. And I just, I almost threw up. I just thought she's experienced spiritual abuse because of me and my whole heart in coming into ministry was to love people and help people. And it was so shattering that the idea of that Jesus would ever do anything like that in my con in, in, in the way I was approaching it. I just thought I've shattered this woman. If anything, her understanding of Christianity is she she would despise it now because mm -hmm. of me again it was uh th that was a, a another moment where i just thought i've got i've got to rethink this and so before we go to kind of that next phase and what the fallout was yeah from from this i just i do want to ask one more question about pastors who are in a similar place i think what i was trying to get at and didn't quite maybe say well is do you think that some of the pastors of these churches, whereas I have interpreted it as branding, are mm -hmm. also struggling with the beliefs themselves, but don't feel the freedom 
and maybe aren't clear enough that they should like cut ties and start over, lose half their church. Yeah. But they are kind of like really questioning some of those denominational or, or organizational commitments. And so uh, a, so a way of soft pedaling it for the moment is yeah. to just kind of downplay it. And, and maybe they'll avoid subconsciously avoid coming to the situation that you came to where it really was confronted with this couple that you loved. Right. I guess I, I want to get your take on that. Cause I, I do know there's a lot of pastors that listen to this show and there's a lot of people who have been at churches like that, that are, everyone's welcome quote unquote but like what does that mean it doesn't mean it doesn't mean affirmation but it it can seem like that to people for a while until they look and then they've already built some friendships they've already begun worshiping here Any, anything you want to add there and then we'll, we'll get to the fallout yeah. of this experience i think that's really insightful i i mean i i know i can't tell you how many times especially with second breath and i'm teaching classes and these pastors kind of sneak in and they'll pull me aside and they'll be like look i i really have I, I believe kind of like you're believing, but if I say this in my church, I'm getting fired or I'm, and, and, you know, I'm close to retirement. So I'm just going to ride it out or others just said, but this is my community. I just got to hang in there. And that's where I feel like that another, that, that, that need for inclusion or that need for stability, I think oftentimes transcends uh, that need for kind of internal integrity in terms of, and I don't blame that. I, I mean, I've did that for years. I think it's very human. But I, I do agree. I think maybe sometimes it's branding, but for I know for years for me, it was I was changing my doctrine and I was trying to get away with as much as I possibly could without having to shatter my whole world. Yeah, it didn't work yeah. for me. I ended up having to shatter my whole world. Yeah. Well, so let, OK, so let's talk about that. So you did have to shatter your world. So first of all, you're shattered by this interaction and yeah. by thinking of yourself as a kind of a spiritual child molester to use her oh language. God. Yeah. It, um, and by the way, just a quick side note, I, years later, I really was able to reconcile with them years, yeah. which was, I'd have to say that now. Cause uh, yeah, yeah, that was a huge part, but it was, it was, it was a, to have that comparison was uh, maybe probably the worst possible thing that I feel like I could be called. I, it was, it was mm -hmm. horrible and it makes so, sense. Yeah. So what happened after that? So you, you have this really low point and then where do you go? So I, I reach a point where, I actually went to my denomination heads. I said, I want you to know I'm wrestling with these things and I'm rethinking everything. And, and it finally got to the point for me where I said, I said, you know, my, my need for an internal sense of who I am will actually match my environment. So I'm rethinking the women issue. I'm thinking LGBTQ. I'm rethinking. So it started kind of lighting the fuse with these issues. Now, at the same time, at the same time, all of this was going on, I was, internally really burned out. You know, I think part of it may have been trying to live uh, this dual life, you know, and hiding it, hiding my denomination. I was wrestling internally with what I was believing. I'd been shattered, you know, by what they said to me after I harmed these, that couple so profoundly. And my wife and my, my marriage was on the rocks because of it. I remember I came home and my wife one day was standing by the Island in the kitchen and she'd been crying. I could tell her eyes were puffy. And she said, Greg, you know, you're, you're, it's like the lights are on, but no one's home. You walk around like a zombie and you're not present with me. You're not present with our three kids. We had three young sons at home at that point. And she said, I feel like you've got our family in this car and you're driving us off a cliff and I'm banging at the windows and screaming at you, but you're not doing a thing. And I knew what she said was right, but I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, I, I, I was going to therapy. I was exercising. I was eating right. I was reading my Bible in Greek and Hebrew. I was studying my theology. I was praying my prayers and I, nothing was refilling the tanks. Um, and so I remember I said to her, 
you know, like so many people do, husbands do, especially, you know, I just minimize it. Oh, babe, you know, this is a hard season of life, uh, but we have three small kids at home, but we'll get over it. And when I, when I dismissed and minimized her perspective, I just saw like her pull away and shut down. And I think that had something profound not happened at that time, that it, we would have gone the way of, of, of separation. And this is a true story. We got the weirdest call like that afternoon from a friend of mine who works in High Point, which is big into furniture, which is a weird segue. But he calls and said they got these comfortable, beautiful white chairs and they got an extra in the shipment and they could give us one at cost. And I was like, that's the weirdest call. No, I don't want one. And my wife, Beth, got on the phone. She said, yeah, no, I want it. And I said, okay, cool. She said, great. This, this chair is going in our bedroom. Our whole house is so crazy with the boys and so full of testosterone. This is going to be the one corner of the house. It's mine. No one's allowed to sit in this chair, but me. And I said, that is fine. I said, That's healthy. You... That's a healthy marriage decision right there. Let me just say, I, let me just say that I, I, I'm, I was pretty desperate, but that if anything that could take some of the, the glare off of me for being such a, a, a poor husband. Well, and, I think uh, she was wise too to, 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 advocate for a little bit of space for herself, especially at a, a point of chaos with young children. Yeah. And she, and she really led me what, what happened next. So, so we get up the next morning and she said, can you take the kids to school? Because I want to have some time in my chair. And I could tell she was getting ready for the long haul. Cause she had like the cup of tea. She had tissues <laughs> out. She had her journal. She had all yeah. these books. And so I went to take the kids to school and then I went to work, went to the church and I came home for lunch, like four hours later and I call, I'm like, hey, babe, where are you? And she's like, I'm up here. So I go upstairs and I can tell, I look in the room and she's still in that chair like four hours later and her eyes are puffy. There's like crumbled up tissues all over the floor. Hmm. And uh, I was like, babe, what, what's going on? She's like, I've decided that I'm going to spend hours in this chair every day till I either have a breakdown or a breakthrough. And I said, I said, well, I really hope for a, a breakthrough. And, uh, but I remember I went the next day, she was in there for hours. The next day, hours. This turned into weeks. And then this turned to a couple of months where she was in that chair for like at least three, sometimes four or five hours every single day. And I thought she was losing it. I really did. I thought, I thought she's losing it. I, my tanks are already empty. Uh, you know, and then I remember the first moment that I really noticed a change in her. I was going out to an, like my fourth or fifth night in a row out to another church meeting and that was a real source of tension and contention in our marriage. And instead of kind of the, okay, yeah, fine, have a good meeting. She came up to me and she gave me a full body hug, like heart to heart, chest to chest, body to body. And she kissed my cheek and she said, I really hope you have a good meeting. Like genuinely sending me out with his blessing. Wow. And, and, I, and I was like, holy shit. I was like, this is, a, this is unmerited love and grace. I've not earned I don't know what that's about, but it really, it was probably the greatest moment of intimacy that we'd had in maybe a year or two yeah. uh, of, of genuine connection. And so that really struck me. And then, then the next week I came home for lunch because the lunch meeting canceled on me and I hear this music playing and I asked, I, Hey, where are you? And she's in the dining room. We never use the dining room. She's in the dining room. She's like listening to Vivaldi or something. And she's got our China out. And she's got this plate of salmon and like this really nice salad and the candles lit and the crystals. And it's just one setting for her. And I was like, she said, Oh babe, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were coming home. I would have made you lunch. And I said, what, what is this? You know, what is the special occasion? And she said, listen, she said, I've spent my whole life so busy and hairy that if I do eat lunch, I make myself a sandwich and eat it over the kitchen. She said, I realize that I'm worth so much more than that. My time is so much more valuable than that. So I'm really taking care of myself. And then she like smiled and just ate 
a bite of her salmon. And I was like, what in the world? And she started like laughing from her belly. Like maybe it, for years, I'd only hear her laugh from her belly, like the one week we're at the beach on vacation. But now she was like laughing. And so I finally stopped her and I was like, I was like, Beth, you know, what, what's happening with you? You know, I feel like, you know, you, you know, you're, it's like watching someone go from, you know, black and white to technicolor, you know, what is the, what's happening? And she said, um, she said, I finally, she said, I've made that space from in my life. And she said, it finally feels like my soul's caught up with my body. She said, for the first time in my life, I feel uh, a sense of centeredness and peace in my life. And it's like, everyone else is in fast motion and I've stepped off the hamster wheel and for the first time, I know what that what what this connection with, with God feels like, what, what that is in my life. And I just was like, well, holy shit, that's exactly what I need. Yeah. And so so all of this was happening. So right now I started questioning all my beliefs. My wife was having this total awakening through through doing by by being still and 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 I didn't know what to do except. OK, so what, the first thing I did, I just ran out and bought a chair. Uh, <laughs> it's gotta be the fucking chair it's, it's, it's definitely the fucking chair i was like clearly the magic is this is the wardrobe in narnia the chair is 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 the portal uh, to, to 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 the third heaven okay so but, got this, but all joking aside i mean i yeah. can't help but thinking about that thing you said almost an hour ago i wanted a faith that was incredibly experiential mm-hmm. and here and, your wife had an experience yes. Right. Or over time, it was a it was a uh, discipline, but it was yes. a it was a disciplined experience. Right. Right. And and, to, and it was what it was like watching to me and especially because especially in a denomination that was so head based, you know, it was right. all information, doctrine, dogma. And I could you know, just if I if I could understand it well enough, I'd experience transformation. It didn't work. Right. It, it, information alone doesn't ever change us. But anyway, I got my chair and I was so excited. We got it. The alarm went off at 5 a.m. We go downstairs, make our coffee. This is the very first day I got my chair. She goes up to her chair. I go down to my chair and I realize as I'm walking towards my chair, I was like, I have no clue what I'm supposed to do in this chair. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I now realize I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do in this chair. And I said, but I know what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to read Hebrew. I'm not going to pray adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I'm not doing any of that. What I'm going to do actually is commit to be here for at least 30 minutes and do absolutely nothing that, that it was, and it was like, God, okay, you know that I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So this is going to be like me, like sunbathing, that if there is going to be anything that happens to me, it's just because your presence is going to do it because I'm committed to do absolutely nothing. So Mm -hmm. that was my super spiritual discipline. That was my, it was to literally, and, and I, my wife says I've got undiagnosed ADD and I think she's right. So probably after about two minutes, it was hell. Like yeah. I was, I was wanting to get up. I was wanting to, you know, turn on the TV. I was wanting to do anything to distract me, but, it, but desperation again was a pretty powerful motivator. And so I just sat and I did this day after day, week after week, and that turned into months. And then soon it was wild. It was, it, it, it really did begin to shift that I would have a sense of, uh, I started looking forward to the time. I, we, we called it chair time. And I started looking forward to chair time. And it was this non-performance, non-head-based, stepping off the hamster wheel to just simply to be still. And I'd never learned how to do it. I'd never. And so it was, uh, but it really was. It became, soon it became like our favorite time of the day. And for a while, my wife and I would just get up. We'd set our arms like kids, you know, before Christmas morning. And then we'd get up, like we'd bounce out of bed, especially in those early years of doing this, and just go sit. And I remember it became soon. It was like, 
in that space, it was the first time where I actually started allowing myself to feel my feelings. I actually started kind of listening to my body. And I remember it was the first, and I had, and I did have some times in centering prayer and in being still where I realized experientially that God was not far off in the cosmos, you know, out there, but that God was closer than my breath, closer than my thoughts. And it was the first time that I thought I can actually trust myself. And that was, that was maybe the, and in that, and so, so during all this, you know, commotion of what do I believe? I'm re, I told my denomination, I'm rethinking this for the first time I've created space in my life now months where I'm actually learning to trust my heart and trust my intu- intuition and trust what's within me. Uh, and then start, that's when I started having the questions of, uh, you know, well, epistemology, what's about our criteria for evaluating what is true. Right. And that's when I realized, Dan, what you were saying earlier about uh, I've chosen to believe this particular interpretation of the Bible that's come from, you know, the Reformation that went up through Scotland and then down to the Southeast. Right. Uh, United States. And I've allowed this particular, there's like, at that point, I think there was something like 33,000 denominations and each right. one thought they were right. And once I realized that I was like, holy shit, I've allowed my entire worldview to be determined by this particular group. Uh, and they've told me that I can't trust my heart, but, right. but you know what? I actually believe I can trust my heart. And so, well, I want to actually talk about that for a second, this trusting of yourself it strikes me that maybe one way we might phrase that question is like when we have feelings, when our body reacts to things in one way or another, yeah. like, is that real data or not? Yeah. And, and the traditional sort of Presbyterian response would be, it is not data, maybe unless it accords with what you right. already think is true rationally or something like that. But it's a really interesting thing to say that your body's response, your the temple of to the Lord that God created you with, the very yes. good thing that God yes. said on the sixth day of creation, that yep. the that the natural responses of that very good thing, your body, your physical body, that that gives you no usable data. And <laughs> right. you know, like I, I get it. It's it's a cessationist line of thinking. So it's very right. skeptical of Pentecostals who right. they would say rely way too much on that data and get kind of, you know, wiggly woggly because of it or something. But it's a pretty bold claim to say that it's not any data. Right. Uh, and and we don't have to like, for instance, when when Presbyterians train their children and they say, you know, if you think there's something weird about a stranger, listen to that. Right. Okay. Uh, right. Right. But but exactly. once you think there's something wrong about a particular doctrine, don't listen to that. No, you, you know? have to subvert that, subvert that to the system. Yes, exactly. And and you know, I know that I like what you said earlier that like, look, I I recognized it was a circular argument only much later because I was driven by these anxieties and this fear and all of that. And I think that that's true. I think that that probably explains it for the most part. It is just really interesting that the the scrutiny that is a problem here. And I'm sure there's more, you know, I'm thinking of PCA pastors that I know who are quite intelligent and quite loving people. Um, We disagree and we really disagree on this sort of interpretive thing, but I'm sure there is like a more sophisticated version of it that they would give, but there is a fundamental tension there. Like, is it any data at all? Is that data worth looking at? Right. And I, and I think, I think you're spot on where yes, it's, it's actionable intelligence 
uh, as long as it's resonant with our dogma. But if it differs from our theology, then that's where you subvert it and say it's wrong. And, and I think that's what I had done. And, and for, I was at a point, though, again, with I was wrestling once I once the fuse was lit on epistemology and my criteria for evaluating truth. Well, then that not only threw in the air. How do I know what is true? I actually began to trust my heart and my experience on a much deeper level. But again, that then threw into question, what is my view of scripture with inerrancy? And I know that is a crux of the variable of how do we determine what is true? And, and pretty oh, yeah. quick, pretty quickly. I drifted from the classic, you know, evangelical perspective of inerrancy and it did not feel unmoored. It felt sane. It felt historic. It felt rational uh, and celebrating the Bible for this amazing story of the evolution of this people's understanding of the divine uh, over centuries and centuries, how stunning that is. And uh, so I, I celebrate that, but in terms of it being, inerrant truth and I, I have to, again, subvert anything to a particular interpretation through a particular group that no longer defined me, that no longer, you know, uh, held sway. So once, once I lit the fuse and, and it got to that level uh, and I started wrestling with then what, how then do I define what is true? It went pretty quickly from, you know, saying a church where women couldn't be ordained and homosexuality is a sin to, well, of course, if there's two people that love each other and want to figure out what it means to grow in intimacy, vulnerability, and then and, and they want to be together for the rest of their lives, I'm going to do anything I can to support them. I don't care if they're gay or straight or where, you know, of course I want to support them. And finally, when I was listening to my being, my heart that I was actually beginning to trust and grow in touch with through meditation and contemplation, then all of a sudden it finally felt congruent, like the outside matched the inside. And I wasn't Hiding, so that it reached a point where I did go to. I I, I quit that church. I, I didn't get into all of the ways that I was changing. I just said I think we should ordain women, and that was that. Yeah, and I and it was terrifying because we had about three months or maybe four or five months worth of savings that that would support us. But I quit, and I had two kids in private school at that time. And part of it was foolishness, and part of it was desperation, and part of it was kind of hope and faith. But mm-hmm. in that you know, in that process, it was, we know we can, and what really came to, again, my amazing wife, she said, she said, babe, if it means that you're actually present as a husband, as a dad, I would, I would rather us live like in a ramshackle one bedroom apartment and you're present than stay here and have all these resources and you continue the way you've been. I think that Beth is the real hero of this story, Greg. No she's offense. a rock star. She, she she leads me to all the good stuff. <laughs> she, I'm, I'm telling you, you should be interviewing her. She's the rock star. Yeah. Maybe, maybe later. I want to drill down a bit to what was going on with this experiential faith, this meditation and the yep. being in your body. First of all, like brass tacks, like what what did you do? What what methods did you so what was the entire thing sitting in silence for 30 minutes just day in, day out for for however long? Or did you bring in any disciplines or practices or what? So when I started that was it. Like I was a one trick pony. I didn't even know anything about it. I just knew that I wasn't going to do anything. And I, then I started reading, you know, I'd, I'd read cloud of unknowing. I'd, I'd read some of these, uh, you know, Julian of Norwich. And I started reading some of the mystics from our tradition, you know, the Christian tradition, but I didn't know. much. And that actually is when I, and it did feel like my wife and I were like two 
adventurous sailors on a boat all by ourselves with a bunch of kind of like dead Catholic authors. You know, that was it. And and it felt <laughs> exciting, but kind of lonely too. And I remember praying, I was like, well, God, I really, I, I would love community. I'd love to learn more about this. I feel like a, a baby uh, in this world. And then someone told me about Second Breath. So it was this, this organization called Second Breath. And uh, I went to it and it was, the whole thing was Christian wisdom tradition. And they were teaching hundreds and hundreds of spiritual practices all about, you know, getting in touch with your body, grounding your body, uh, all in touch with opening your heart, all in touch with quieting your mind and clearing your mind. And I was like, holy shit. And it was like landing on a new continent. And I realized these people knew, had maps of all the mountains and valleys and streams and rivers. It was like, and they knew the language of contemplation, but beyond contemplation, they knew the language of, of the wisdom tradition. And to me, it was like walking into Narnia. I mean, I couldn't believe it existed. And so I was like a sponge. And so then I started learning, you know, hundreds of spiritual practices you can fold in, you know, while you're driving your car or just before you pick up your phone or in the morning and the evening and, and, and a spiritual practice just was, it just was a moment of intention stepping off of the hamster wheel to be present. And it wasn't making anything happen or achieving anything. It was just taking my chair time and recognizing that the way to be present, you could do that all the time, even when you're busy. Mm. And to me, what happened in that space experientially was, I think it I think it's Richard Rohr that says he simply defines a mystic as someone who has shifted from an intellectual system to believe intellectual system of belief to actual inner experience is how roar defines a mystic yeah and i think that's what happened started happening for me where i'd been knowing all this doctrine and preaching and teaching all this doctrine but it was like i don't know if you just those old coke machines where you would just put your quarter into the coke machine but there would be something sticky at the top so the coin gets hung up like right when you put the coin in the coin the, the coke machine the soda machine so like mechanically it's it's technically in the Coke machine, but it's just sitting there at the top. So pragmatically, it's meaningless. Yeah. And that to me is like all that doctrine was in my head. But uh, so technically, I knew it but pragmatically in terms of impact. It was useless. And then finally, it was like someone put their fingernail in and dropped the coin past the gunk and it lands in the machine with a thunk. And then, boom, now you can actually get your drink. That to me is what the chair did and, and what spiritual practice did. It created space for the coins to drop for uh, me to actually begin to experience from the inside out. And, and to me, it was like earliest in our just conversations of new wineskin, paradigm shift, open to the larger consciousness. Finally, it was an openness to let go of this rigid fear-based uh, dogma and open up to experience. And so it started, it, it felt like for the first time in, in, in deeper, deeper ways, you know, there was love, joy, peace, patience, all this fruit of the spirit that I've been preaching about for decades. Now it's actually, I started actually having an experience of, and it, and it wasn't because I was doing the right thing. It was like, I started actually trusting my heart and the idea then of officiating over a gay marriage to help two people grow and what it means to love each other. That felt totally congruent. I was like, Oh my God, that's the, that's totally within my heart. And that makes me feel joy. And that makes me feel love and compassion. And so finally it was like, this is leading to the fruit of the spirit. All those years of fear-based system were leading to dissonance and anxiety. But as I've actually learned to trust my heart and go in this, and, and that doesn't mean just my fleeting feelings, but really grounded heart, grounded body, it finally is resonant with what Jesus said would happen if we follow him in his footsteps. Uh, this, 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 this fullness of life, which includes the highs and the lows, but it's, so it's not, it's not this uh, from wave top to wave top, you know, just giddy. I'm not, I'm not in, in any way saying that at all. 
because there's it's also opening the door to much greater pain and suffering inside myself too but it's all of it to get i think that fullness of life it was like opening up to that experience uh and again beth my wife is the one that's led me and all that over and over again well, and you and I are old enough to to get this reference to the hair club for men commercial, but you're not you're now not only the executive director of Second Breath, you're also a client. <laughs> so how yeah. how did you end up getting a job and running the place? Well, first it was I just quit I, I was in the class at Second Breath. This was back in maybe two thousand eight. And that's when I realized, you know, I need to get I need to get out of the PCA church. And so I, I quit and I the only the only little thing I had, my wife and I started a nonprofit that was focused on, you know, uh, retreats. And all we were trying to do is just, you know, preaching to ourselves, creating space for people to catch their breath and begin to learn some about being still. But that was I mean, I maybe would have one meeting a week. I think I would bring in maybe two or three hundred dollars a month. I mean, we were living off of savings. And it just so happened that there was an Episcopal church that was connected with Second Breath. And the rector of that church, they were having some uh, crisis uh, with the youth ministry. And I'd never worked with youth, but he had been the one teaching the class. And he said, look, uh, I know you've got some skills and kind of creating some healing space. Would you come and do a three-month contract with us? And so I was was very nervous about getting involved with the institutional church again. But I said, fine, three months. So I came on. I worked. I did that. He said, that contract ended. He said, can you sign a year contract? And I said, no, I said, I'll, I'll, I signed a year contract, but if only with the caveat that I can get out of the contract at every two months if I want to, because I was so nervous about getting back into church. And so, and again, this Episcopal church was connected with, with Second Breath and su- supportive, and the, they met on the church's campus. So this eventually led to me becoming, working full-time at the Episcopal church, and then actually pursuing ordination, then getting ordained as an Episcopal priest, and then I started teaching some part-time at Second Breath. And again, it was just because it was so powerful in my own life, all these practices and this whole fresh approach to Christian spirituality that was so resonant with biology and physics and modern psychology. And, you know, so it actually was resonant with my mind. And, and so through that, over time, the opportunity came to become, as the, the rector was retiring, uh, the executive director. I was co-director. There was actually, the director was, her name's Ruth Anderson, She's brilliant. She directed it for 20 years, along with the rector of the church. And we were co-directors for a while. And then Second Breath recently in the last few years has had a really uh, a huge metamorphosis. We shifted from a local school uh, to really uh, with more of an international uh, approach with an online school and an app. And all of it is about spiritual practice and articulating this fresh Christian spirituality. Fresh, but of course, ancient. Yeah, right. I think I think the ancient is so fresh. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, fr- fresh could imply that it's new, but it's really not. I mean, it just and, and the thing is, it's not even really teaching doctrine. It's just creating space for, you know, it, it's in no way minimizing the Jesus that people might be more familiar with, of the son of God, the second person, of the Trinity. But we're saying Jesus was also a wisdom teacher teaching about how to live a fully human life now. Right. And his his primary method was exp- changing your paradigm but by exploding your worldview and then inviting you to a much more expansive experience of reality. And so that's what we try to do, mainly through spiritual practice. Well, Greg, it's awesome. I'm I'm looking at the site right now. I've got some links in the show notes just to the site in general, the the resource page, and then also there is like a open 
uh, Wednesday noon Eastern Zoom meeting that people can join. Is that right? Right, right. Every Wednesday at noon, we just g- gather on Zoom for a half hour of spiritual practice together. So I'm putting that in there. Um, might have to have you back in some way or another to to get into some more nitty gritty about some of these practices. I know that that many people, many listeners and, and patrons on the Facebook group, for instance, will will kind of regularly post questions about like, what are these actual practices that Dan's talking about that people have mm-hmm. tried, you know, what what have you. And so there is I know there's some appetite for that. So people can join that Zoom meeting. They can check out the resources. I'm going to add your guys's page to the the prayer page on soyourdeconstructing.com, which is my my resource that I have put together with my friend Sari. Awesome. Anything else you you want to say as as we wrap up here? You know, I I think, and I said this to you just when we were talking briefly before we started, but find a space like this that is committed to creating a a genuinely safe environment for people to wrestle through their beliefs and not feel uh, judged or condemned uh, on both sides, as you say in the introduction of this podcast, and then you actually embody that. Uh, It's amazing find. I can't, I'm so glad that Hannah contacted you and that you contacted me because I've listened to so many of your podcasts since since I learned about it. And I'm just grateful for the space. To me, it's so resonant with our heart and second breath. And I just appreciate, you know, surfing the same wave with you and being, I'm really grateful for what you're doing here. I appreciate that, Greg. Uh, What a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate getting your whole story. And and thanks for dipping into some little rabbit trails as we would along with me (laughs) and i wish you the best man i'm I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and and just thanks for chatting thanks sam great to be with you this is uh the track for blake from a recent record i put out under the moniker of havana swim club it is instrumental sample based indie dance music perfect for various kinds of playlists the pool the study slash workflow playlist so you can check that out the link to spotify and everything else is in the show notes for havana swim club thanks to josh gilbert my trusty editor uh, for his great work as usual here on this episode and i do have links uh as we said to the second breath center they also have an uh, open Zoom meetings on Wednesdays at noon Eastern. And I thought that might be something that a few of you would be interested in joining or checking out. So there is also a link there as well as to their resources page on their website. And that's it. I think we'll see you guys next week. Of course, if you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan That's in the notes. Enjoy the rest of this Havana Swim Club track, and I will see you next week.